Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I'm joined by Michael Rubio, General Manager of ESG and Sustainability at Chevron. During today's episode, Michael joins us to talk about Chevron's approach towards ESG and the energy transition at a time of rising ESG headwinds, and how oil and gas companies are managing both the opportunities and the threats and risks associated with the changing climate. He also talks about the different ways in which management teams can balance investor pressure to stay disciplined, generate free cash flow and return capital to shareholders, with investor pressure to go green, reduce carbon footprints and grow renewables. Hope you guys enjoy! Hi, Michael. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for doing this today. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate you having us. No, not at all. I've been, I've been really looking forward to this episode for a while, and I think we, we've got a great amount to cover today. But before we jump into the deep end, I'd just like to start on a slightly more lighthearted note. So I'd like to put two questions to you. Firstly, it would just be interesting to get a small insight into your life outside of work. So do you have any hobbies or activities which you like to do outside of work, which our listeners might be surprised to learn about. Um, and secondly, I've been asking all of our guests if they have a book that they would recommend our listeners go and check out and, and why that might be. Uh, it can be industry-related, specific to your personal interests, completely random, whatever. So I'll pass it over to you. Thanks, Ben. Well, that's a good question to start the conversation. You know, I, I would say there's two things I like to do outside of work. One is to run. I'm a big outdoors enthusiast, conservation type person. And so trail running, running up into the mountains, doing ultra marathons is, it was a hobby and something I love to do. So a, a good book I'd encourage folks to tune into regarding running is a, a favorite of mine, Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. It's a book that talks about a indigenous people in, in Mexico that are just gifted athletes and they're people that can run for days and folks that I look up to and admire. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is my, I've got a, a young daughter who is a competitive golfer and we're not a golfing family. I didn't know much about the sport. So I find myself often on the bag caddying for my little 14 year old, just giving hugs and cleaning clubs, if you will. But Right now, I'm reading a book trying to become a better student of golf and understand the game and found a book by Mark Brody. So for those listeners that like golf, I really recommend it. The title of the book is Every Shot Counts. Mark is a numbers person who came up with the strokes gain statistic for, for professional golf, and it's really enlightening. It's an, an eye-opener and trying to learn the game so I could be a good caddy for my daughter on the weekends. Amazing. Thanks, Michael. I'm sure you've got plenty of amazing running routes around your neck of the woods, as well as some incredible golf courses. Uh, I like to run myself, but maybe not quite to the ultramarathon levels you're talking about. It all sounds very impressive. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about that for, for a while, but I'll bring it back into focus. So let, let's just start things off on a more personal note and with a bit of background on your career to set the scene. So where did you grow up? What did you study and where? Uh, where did your interest in the energy industry originate? And, and how did you get into the industry? Where did it all begin? be great just to get a quick overview of your career up until joining Chevron back in 2013 and a high level overview of your role now. Sure. Appreciate it, Ben. My roots are from the central part of the state of California. I was born and raised in the Golden State. My father was a farm worker out in the cotton fields and he's a, it was a ranch hand for a man that had livestock. 
And so my roots are really in the agricultural farming industry, given my father's background. My mother, on the other hand, was a produce sales lady, also in the ag industry. And so growing up in the Central Valley, we got to see production firsthand uh, because it's just a cornucopia or a breadbasket of where food comes from for the rest of the world. And then given that background, being raised there, went to to public schools, went to junior college, had aspirations to both play baseball and be in criminology and criminal justice, believe it or not. So found myself going to school on the East Coast and learned a lot. And as things would happen, got into politics at a very young age. I'm just competitive by nature. You know, we talked about my ultra running and, and running um, the hobby. And by happenstats, got into campaigning and ended up running for office at a relatively young age in the early 20s and was elected to a county supervisor position. That then led me to running for the state Senate in California. And I had the great privilege and honor of serving the Central Valley, pretty much making up for folks that know the state of California from Bakersfield to Fresno, that particular portion of the state. Had the privilege to do that in serving in that capacity. I got to learn a lot about water and the role that it plays, both for the citizens in the state of California, but certainly the agricultural industry. And then stumbled into the fact that one of the largest energy consumers in the state is the movement of water. And so then got into energy and serving in that capacity, then worked on the Environmental Quality Committee. And so studying and learning about the California Environmental Quality Act, which is referred to as CEQA, really furthered my interest in the intersection of policy, the environment, energy, water, how they all intersect. And so when I got out of politics, it was only a natural progression to go to work for a company, one that I respected that was headquartered in California, that being Chevron. And then Chevron has a large presence back in the central part of the state. So I got to see the good that the company did in and around, not only where they operate, but certainly within the community. And so when given the opportunity, I took advantage of it. And I can't believe it's been nearly a decade now, and it's been a real fun run. Brilliant. Thanks, Michael. And I guess before we fast forward to your time at Chevron now, something I'd be interested to pick your brain on is obviously you mentioned that you were running for state Senate for California from a young age. You were involved in the setup from a young age. So clearly you progressed quickly and very early on in your career. How did you find engaging with senior executives at that age? Because I, I presume you're one of the youngest in the room at that point, And I know you say you were competitive from a young age. I'd just be interested to hear about your experiences of fighting for your place, fighting to be heard, just and just rising up the ranks. The reason I ask is bring it back to the big question that's doing the rounds in the energy industry at the moment of attracting the next generation and appealing to the younger generations. We try to tackle a lot of the issues that we'll come on to discuss today. So it would just be interesting to hear your perspectives and experiences of that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'm really grateful to have been raised by a mother that taught me to be have a passion for learning. And so I have to say, Ben, that one of the great privileges in that role was being able to bring together the best minds on any given subject on any given day and to learn. And so reflecting back on the experience, if, if there was an issue like carbon sequestration, which I introduced a bill on, on the regulations very early in my career or siting and permitting wind and solar projects, which we we did some of the largest projects in the entire state when I was a county supervisor in Kern County, working with the solar industry, working with the wind industry. 
that was a really big driver for that particular county. We could bring the best minds into a room and learn. And so it was a, a really tremendous privilege. And I was honored to be able to go through that. It was a great experience. It was almost a graduate program all wrapped up in itself with a number of other learning opportunities. And just see how the intersection of the emerging new technologies in the energy space are so dependent on policy-enabled markets, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. To see the intersection of it and to be at the tip of the spear there was a great opportunity for me to learn at such a young age. And it really has shaped my overall thinking in the need for collaboration, the need for partnership, the need for people to come together and work on the common goal, which is to achieve the Paris Agreement. And being a Democrat from California, I joke with my friends because they often will ask, you work for who? You work for Chevron, but you're a Democrat. Well, you know, what help, help me connect the two. And here in the States, there's such hotly contested you know, races that I'm sure folks across the Atlantic may follow. There's great divisions. But in the end, I think there's a lot more common that brings us together and, you know, without all the news reels that you, that you capture, but we're really trying to work on, on the common goals that we have and, and hopefully we'll be able to get there together. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. And I think that theme of commonality and cross-industry collaboration is, is certainly one that's so important, but one that also we'll come on to, to talk about over the course of the episode. But without further ado, let's dive straight into the topic of the moment then. So ESG. I think one of the major challenges today is the ambiguity around the term ESG. Everybody has a different take on what it means for them, how it will impact the long-term value of their business, how it will or should impact their investment decisions and like uh, increasing environmental risks, ESG headwinds, et cetera. So I'd just be interested to, to get your personal take on the term ESG. What does it mean for you? We're fortunate at Chevron, not only what it means for me, but when I joined the company roughly 10 years ago, it was very evident the company had a certain culture. It's called the Chevron way. What it lays out is the expectation is we're not only looking to deliver results, but how we deliver those results are just as important as the final outcome. And so when you talk about ESG, what you're really talking about is how are you going to sustain the long-term value proposition as a company, value in terms of total shareholder return for the investors that own your company, but importantly, the long-term sustainability for a healthy workplace for the people that are driving the company. And in the end of the day, our people are our greatest asset. And so working on the culture of the company is really at the heart of the environmental, the social, the governance aspects. And so it's simple at Chevron. It's the way in which we do our business. I like to believe that that's our competitive advantage in the end of the day. It's the culture. It's the people of the company that are going to help innovate, help solve the real challenging problems that we have today and into the future. And so imposed with the question, you know, this notion of ESG, I like to also point to our history. Originally founded here in, in the state of California, as I said, more than a century ago, you can find early bulletins and, and documents from the company where it talked about in order to be a good business, you had to be a good community partner, whether that was working with the farmers where we were removing orange groves to put in new oil derricks or working with the unions to ensure that employees had the benefits and the pay 
and the work to life balance. These things were talked about more than 100 years ago. We're still talking about them today. And so given that history and given the culture that is really driven by, by the employees of the company, it really gives us that competitive advantage and it's easy to speak to the sustainability and ESG issues that are uh, confronting us. Thanks, Michael. You've just spoken about the importance of that relationship you have with the community and actually serving the communities that you operate within. Obviously, there's been a lot of press around the oil and gas industry and, and the EMP sector in particular about how these companies have perhaps lost that connection with the communities that they serve. And I think governance in particular has come under the microscope as it's become obvious that companies and their shareholders have really prioritised growth and returns at all costs in recent years. And I think from what you're saying, it sounds as though the culture at Chevron really differentiates you from other players in the industry. And it's perhaps one of the main reasons why you find yourselves in such a strong position today moving forwards. So, Ben, I, I think one of the things we need to highlight here is the shift community focus to more globalization of the issues. Chevron's taken long pride in working with communities, working with indigenous people from you know, different parts of the globe to working with people of color to help advance education programs, for example. The other dynamic we're dealing with now, and it's part of that evolutional process, is working. The community now is the globe. With the flow of information as a global international company, the view is how are we going to engage globally? And so when you look at the big topics of the day, whether it's climate change, diversity and inclusion, human rights, we're pointing to things now how we are engaging and partnering around the world to start tackling not only the local community issues, but also the global issues that are confronting us as global citizens. And so this is where we're excited and it's with great optimism that we're partnering and engaging with people across sector and across the NGO and civil society groups to find the solutions of the day. Brilliant. Thanks, Michael. And so just coming on to these global issues, you've cited climate change there. I'd like to touch on that a little bit. So you've spoken about Chevron's culture. You've spoken about the ESG strategy, attitudes towards ESG and the energy transition. If we look at the majors across the globe, I think one of the biggest debates that we have with our members across our network is the differing approach towards ESG and the energy transition between the European majors, so the likes of BP, Shell, Total, Equinor, and the US majors, the likes of Chevron, Exxon, Conoco. I think the European majors are undoubtedly leaning towards diversifying their portfolios away from fossil fuels by investing in alternative energies to combat climate change and to reduce their carbon footprint, while arguably the US majors seem to continue to see their future in oil and gas. And are investing more into CCUS and decarbonisation technologies to address their environmental performance. So can you just set out Chevron's stance for us? What approach are you taking and why do you believe this is the correct approach? You know, I, I think the narrative out there is trying to create this big division between European and US. And I wouldn't subscribe to that thinking. While there's different strategies, I think the world's going to need different strategies. There are some differences. You know, some of our European peers are cutting their dividend to fund the energy transition. Chevron's in a different position today. We have a very advantaged portfolio that allows for us to organically grow and importantly, not only sustain, but grow the dividend. And at the same time, we have a very strong, if not the strongest balance sheet within the sector that gives us a competitive advantage to be able to go through this energy transition 
and to do it in a very prudent fashion. And, and what do I mean by that? Oil and gas, considering looking at all scenarios, is going to be needed at some level, but it's going to be different in the future, in a lower carbon future. You're going to have to do it at a lower cost point, but you're also going to have to do it from a lower carbon intensity standpoint. And that's why Chevron strategy could be simply summarized in higher returns, lower carbon. That's who's going to be competitive today and into the future as the world evolves and moves towards achieving the Paris Agreement. And so when you look at Chevron's strategy, it's rooted in those two fundamentals. One, we want to be competitive so that what we are spending from a CapEx standpoint, there's a, there's a good return on capital employed so that we can present that long-term value proposition for our shareholders, but also do it with a smaller carbon footprint. And so when you look at our strategy that we've laid out today and the greenhouse gas reduction targets, we've done them in line with the Paris Agreement's five-year stock take. So we're aligning our efforts with governments who ultimately are going to be held accountable for achieving the Paris Agreement. We think that is a sensible and, and smart approach to take. We are the only company today, Ben, that has developed greenhouse gas reductions on both a commodity, meaning if the world's going to need oil and gas, how are we going to work together to find a way to lower the carbon intensity of that oil and gas? And then second, to do it on an equity basis. So if we have a financial interest in a barrel of oil, we're also going to account for the emissions that come from that barrel of oil. And we think that is going to result in then real reductions that are going to aid the effort to achieve the Paris Agreement. All companies within our sector are, are investing in renewables, but some are just taking different approaches. There are some that are wanting to produce wind and solar. We find that it, we have a more competitive position to actually buy the electron from partnerships with uh, Algonquin, for example, where we are purchasing the electron from wind and solar to energize or provide the energy for our base business that will then lower the carbon intensity of that oil and that gas. And if we can remain in the top quartile, if we're doing it from a cost perspective competitively, if we're doing it then from a carbon intensity competitively, then it will compete in that lower carbon market. So that's one part of the business. The second is to then grow the low carbon businesses that are going to advance the global effort to achieve the Paris Agreement. If you take a step back, there are really two approaches to put it maybe overly simplistic, but I think it's, it's good for us to consider. One is there are areas where wind and solar will be able to replace fossil fuels, and therein lies some low-hanging fruit. There's a second part in the overall system that we as global citizens need to find a way to abate or reduce the emissions in those harder-to-abate sectors. So you're in you know, heavy industrials, concrete, aviation, it's in that area that we believe we have some organizational capabilities and strengths to advance the things that we're doing, whether it's carbon sequestration or hydrogen. And so we're working on, on those today and we're making prudent investments. And collectively, when you wrap all that together, we've laid out a plan to, to invest a little over $3 billion between now and 2028. And then that all syncs up with our roadmap to achieving net zero by 2050. So we've provided transparency to that strategy on how we're going to lower the, the base business and then how we're going to grow the low carbon businesses as well. 
And so we think that's going to put us in a very competitive position, both in the near term and long term, as we all work towards the Paris Agreement. Hey guys, I want to take a short break from the conversation to let you know that the Energy Council will be hosting its North America Energy Capital Assembly in Houston on the 14th of October. In addition to the networking and panel discussions throughout the day, we'll be hosting our coveted Lifetime Achievement Awards Dinner, where we will celebrate the careers of John Sellers and Cody Campbell, co-CEOs of Double Eagle Development following their most recent sale to Pioneer Natural Resources for $6.4 billion in April 2021. We will also be introducing a Deal of the Year award this year, and we'll be electing the winners in the coming weeks. If you're interested in learning more about how you can participate, including ticket registration, taking a dinner table, and general sponsorship, please send me an email at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. I'd like to come on to your comments around investments in your low-carbon business lines and, and growing these moving forwards to help you on your journey to achieving net zero by 2050. But first, I'd like to come back to something you said around Chevron strategy. I think it's really interesting the way you put it, higher returns, lower carbon. It sounds brilliant, but I know there's a lot of pushback from particularly smaller operators in the industry around the feasibility of achieving that. Some people think that investing in lower carbon business lines and prioritizing decarbonization strategies means that you're going to have to cut your dividend and that there's a a trade-off between financial performance and environmental performance. Now, clearly you aren't of the same opinion at Chevron, but I'd be interested to ask, how does investor pressure to stay disciplined, generate free cash flow and return capital to shareholders reconcile with investor pressure to go green, reduce carbon footprints and grow renewables? So how are oil and gas companies addressing these investor concerns? It'd be interesting just to, to have you elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, Ben, I would say it's uh, you have to take a very balanced approach. I think of it as someone landing a plane where they have two instruments where they're keeping the left side up and the right side up and they're balancing the plane to land it. Herein lies the same concept, because if you go too far on higher returns, but not enough on lower carbon, you're not going to be successful. If, on the other hand, you go on with the instrument to go a little more on the lower carbon, but not enough on the higher returns, you're not going to be successful. And so the opportunity here and where we find that we're taking that more prudent, disciplined approach is to pull on those instruments equally and to devote the appropriate amount of resources to both where we are successful in both. Because if ultimately we're successful in both, then when you look at the scenarios that have been presented globally, we believe that's going to put us in a position to be competitive. Because make no mistake here, Ben, there will be winners and losers in the energy transition. And as such, we want to make sure that we have a strong balance sheet, appropriate cash flow. Our financial priorities have been very consistent over the last decade plus years, where when you look at our peers, they haven't been less so consistent. And so we think that disciplined, consistent approach has been successful for us in the past and will be successful for us in the future. And you may ask why, Ben, and I I really like to point to the fact that given our headquarters is in California, where much of, say, domestically in the United States, the environmental movement started off the coast of Santa Barbara, it's given us a, a line of sight and a point of view that helps us manage this energy transition, because California likes to be a bellwether on a lot of these, a lot of the environmental 
policies, a lot of the climate change ambitions. And so working with the administration within the state has given us that organizational capability to, to manage it outside of California and not only domestically, but certainly internationally. So it gives us that perspective to best manage it moving forward. And we have found that balancing those two, the, the higher returns with the lower carbon is really going to be the appropriate path. No, absolutely. And, and I'd just like to hone in more specifically on how oil and gas companies are allocating capital to address environmental concerns and, and actually position themselves for future growth. I mean, investors are, of course, calling for discipline today and, and want to see more of a low growth dividend payout model compared to the growth at all cost model of the past. And I guess then what I'd like to put to you is, might we see, for example, oil and gas companies investing more into decarbonization, low carbon technologies, instead of, say, new frontier exploration going forward? Would that type of business line be able to deliver the types of returns that shareholders expect? Or are there other ways to leverage existing upstream positions into economic ESG value streams? So I think you just hit on something, Ben, there. And you know, just from Chevron's vantage point, what we like to highlight is that we intend to have a large, low growth, higher return, lower carbon conventional business, which will sustain and grow our dividend. And you know, at its heart, oil and gas has a very important role in the world today. And at, it's arguably at the heart of all prosperity we do need to find a way to lower the carbon emissions and to produce it responsibly. And that goes beyond just GHG emissions. It's the management of water and, and air quality issues as well. But make no mistake, our intention is to have that large, low growth, high return conventional business uh, that will certainly sustain and grow the dividend. On the other hand, we're looking to, to pursue and grow low carbon businesses like renewable fuels, whether it's you know, our new patented co-processing biofuels in our Southern California refinery, if it's hydrogen or carbon sequestration and utilization and storage, we have the capability and potential competitive advantages in these spaces, and we're going to lean in on those to move forward. And I think you know, what you're highlighting is there's, there's just the difference between us and our European peers where they're getting involved in the production of wind and solar businesses. When we evaluate it, because we are looking at it, it's a very crowded space. It's an area where perhaps we don't have that competitive advantage. And therefore, we're looking to other areas that are very important to the world's effort to achieve the Paris Agreement. And so by staying disciplined and focused on that large, low growth business that's going to protect the dividend, it will then put us in a very good position to then grow those low carbon businesses that are going to be equally important to the world's effort to achieve the Paris Agreement. Brilliant. I think it makes a lot of sense. And if we just hone in on two specific low carbon business units that, that yourselves and, and many other operators across the US are looking to grow, I, I think I'd like to focus in specifically on CCUS and hydrogen. I'll come on to hydrogen in a second, but maybe if we start with CCUS, I just want to put the question to you, are, are North American operators well positioned to address climate change? and emission reduction through the use of carbon capture. I mean, does carbon capture address the investor needs and is there going to be value to it through, say, credit generation going forward? Well, I think we have to, Ben. It's incumbent upon us to do so because there are just some sectors that are very hard to abate. And the only way to abate is to capture and to store. And I would say there's three things to consider. 
The first is when we store it, we've got to consider where we're storing it. And so we have to find places in the world where we can put it back down into the ground, into rock, and where we lock it in there and it, we don't get leakage. And when you look at below surface or below ground organizational capabilities, we have that. And so that's an area where we are really exploring. We're advancing and have been operating one of the largest carbon sequestration projects in the world in Australia at our Gorgon facility. So we have the organizational capabilities and expertise there. The second area is we might be able to capture it and store it in other products that are used. And so we've made partnerships and investments through our technology venture arm to explore and find these new opportunities in which we can store carbon in other raw materials. And so I would highlight a partnership we have with Blue Planet, for example, that will look to making raw material carbonate rocks in place of curried limestone, for example, in building material. That's a, a unique opportunity. And then the third is, is more on the front end on how we capture CO2. So there's the conventional capturing it from the actual tailpipe, I, I use the word tailpipe, the smokestack or wherever the source of CO2 is coming from. But there's a new one, and I wouldn't say that it's new, but a, an emerging one to do direct air capture where you capture CO2 from the atmosphere. And so we've made investments in carbon engineering to look for ways that we can accelerate the commercialization of that direct air capture technology. So we're going to make advancements in all of those and, and look for ways to, to scale them up. We've got a, and I would close on this particular topic with a project and a partnership we have with Schlumberger and Microsoft, where we're working in the central part of, of California in a little town called Mendota, where we're looking to take agricultural waste and produce renewable power. So we're going to actually produce electricity that's renewable that will feed into the grid and meet the renewable portfolio standard for the state. And then we will permanently store the CO2 and geological formation for which we've got the expertise to do so. So therein lies many different opportunities in CCUS that we're exploring, partnering, piloting, taking advantage of today. And we think there's going to be a great deal of opportunity in the future to be one of part of the solutions for you know, our global effort. It seems like the opportunities are endless, and I'm sure I could probably ask a hundred more questions off the back of that, but I'm conscious of time, so I'll refrain for now. But before we finish, I know you touched on renewable fuels and you've spoken about decarbonizing hard to abate sectors. So I'd just be interested to touch on hydrogen. There's obviously a huge amount of hype around us at the moment, but I think it's safe to say that by and large, the industry hasn't got to a stage where many companies or investors believe that it's reached the stage where it's able to be rolled out at, at a commercial scale and, and where they have the confidence to invest in it. I know Chevron recently announced a partnership with Toyota to, to explore hydrogen development opportunities. So I just wondered if you might be able to elaborate on this a little bit and, and to talk about what your plans are and what role you see hydrogen playing in the future. What, what is the growth potential? Well, there's a lot of potential there. It will depend on the pace. I, I just showed in another meeting I had been with a uh, rendering of a hydrogen fueling station from our 2003 corporate responsibility report. We've got a long history in hydrogen. We were one of the first to have a hydrogen fueling station on the West Coast here in the United States. And we're continuing to look at, at hydrogen. Uh, most recently, you mentioned the partnership we're really excited about with Toyota. It's going to look to significantly reduce 
the emissions in medium-sized vehicles uh, today. We're also continuing to partner with the California Fuel Cell Partnership that's making advancements in this space. So whatever is going to emerge in the hydrogen, whether it's blue, green, hydrogen, the, the different colors and shades of it today, importantly, we're going to be a player in that. And we're making the prudent investments to have that line of sight uh, as to what may be scalable and commercial. And we'll take advantage of that in the future. Brilliant. Thanks, Michael. And, and I think just before we wrap up, coming back to what I was saying earlier about the ambiguity around the term ESG, I want to focus on the actual measurement of ESG metrics. So ESG is obviously becoming more and more important in investors' final investment decision-making processes and in determining how and where they choose to deploy their capital. Many investors worldwide have been advocating for more widespread and standardized adoption of sustainability and and ESG reporting. So what's your take on this and, and how do you measure Chevron's ESG metrics? Sort of who creates these metrics? What do they look like? And and will they successfully bring capital back to the space? I'd, I'd be interested to ask what would be your advice to other operators, be it IOCs or majors listening in, or, or even the small to mid caps listening in? How would you go about disclosing those ESG metrics and, and restoring investor confidence in the sector to actually give them the confidence to put their money to work in the space? Well, Ben, I think this is a, a great question we could probably spend another hour on because it's such an important part of the ESG space. You know, I, I stated earlier, it's we're all competing. And so it's important for the markets to differentiate the good performers from the poor performers. And to date, what we have right now is a lot of misinformation that's largely driven by headlines, unfortunately. And so we welcome uh, a standardization globally on ESG reporting. We're working on a number of different fronts, whether it's the World Economic Forum or in the United States, SASB, to name one. We really welcome, particularly on the climate front, TCFD. We think that, you know, at a minimum, it's given us a really good opportunity to share with our investors and key stakeholders how the company is effectively managing both the opportunities and the threats or risks associated to climate. We work closely with IPCA. Uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goals as well. And we issue both our sustainability report and our climate report with a data table that that is indexed to IPCA, to TCFB, and to SASB. So hopefully, you know, when investors look and they seek this information, they will be able to compare us to our peers and other companies, whether it's an issue of greenhouse gas reductions or our management of human capital management issues diversity and inclusion, statistics, et cetera, it's important for that to evolve and get to a place where we have some standardization. We're confident that will come about, that there's enough attention and focus on the subject now. We just hope that when it does, it's something that our reporting standards that look at those standards or or the data sets that will be material or helpful for investors then to make the decisions that they need to make to choose the, the company that's performing well from an ESG and sustainability standpoint. And you've spoken about the hope of there being a standardization across the industry moving forward. Do you think it's possible to create a standardized benchmark or set of ESG metrics for investors to compare the performance of different industry players against one another? I mean, there's so much variation between different basins. If we focus on, on just the lower 48, never mind looking globally, And obviously, different companies face different challenges and have different financial capabilities. I know it's no easy feat, but 
Do you think it's possible to achieve a standardized industry benchmark or framework? I think it's going to be possible, but you know, the, what I was referring to just a second ago, my part of being hopeful is what we find though is too often entities try to take one broad brush and crane it across all sectors. That it's our experience or my personal experience that that just simply doesn't work. For example, you know, looking at scope three emissions, the end consumer emissions uh, that come from products that people buy or sell, it's so hard to determine who's accountable and responsible for those scope three emissions and the double, triple, quadruple accounting for emissions in today's world. We need some broader standardizations that take into account the different sectors and the role that those sectors play in the overall economy and the systems within the economy. And so I think it's possible, but we need some very simple, high-level standards that can apply to all sectors. And then you would have a second tier of standards that would apply to specific sectors for the uniqueness that they have. And then I think you'll be able to get some standardization there. But to expect you know, a broad standardization of ESG disclosure requirements across all sectors, I have found to be very difficult. Uh, there are a lot of great efforts out there and we're hopeful. We're working with many of them and we need to get there. And hopefully we will, but certainly we'll have to look at it from a, a sector by sector perspective, but also take into account some high level standards that can apply to, to most companies. No, it's, it's a big topic and, and I'm sure I could ask a thousand questions off the back of it. And, and as you say, we could probably talk another, for another hour about this alone, but we'll wrap it up there. So, Michael, I, I mean, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your views on and approach towards the industry. And I think just to wrap it up, I'd like to hand it over to you for some closing comments to summarize what we've spoken about, just to share your views on the next steps for the industry and to talk about any partnership opportunities you'd be interested in hearing about, and, and just a closing message to, to any of your industry peers listening in. So uh, over to you. Oh, well, Ben, we just appreciate the opportunity to continue this conversation on such an important subject. We don't have all the answers. And so for folks that are listening, if they'd like to engage, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, would be more than willing to engage on continuing this conversation Chevron's committed to transparency and progress in the ESG space and executing against our strategy of higher returns and lower carbon. And so we look forward to partnering with others around the world. And if there's an opportunity or of interest to do that, we'd appreciate the opportunity to engage and continue this important conversation. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to speak with Michael about any of the points that he has raised during today's episode, or if you'd be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities with Chevron, then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients to help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you are interested in learning more about the ways we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Michael, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network who you think would enjoy them. Thanks, and see you next time.